And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy with you this hour. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a challenging year and a half for Governor Tim Walz, along with his usual duties of negotiating a two-year state budget with a legislature divided along party lines. He used his emergency powers to respond to COVID-19 and deployed the National Guard and other law enforcement resources in the face of rioting and looting that followed the police killings of George Floyd and Dante Wright. And that is not to mention the drought that has hit the state this summer and a tough re-election challenge the DFL governor is likely to face next year. Given all that, I'm glad Governor Walls found the time to join us for the first half of today's program. You can get your question into the governor. Give us a call. Hurry up, though, because the time will go quickly. 651-227-6000, the number to call, 651-227-6000. Governor Tim Walls, thanks a lot for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Mike, and good morning to you. Uh, Let's start with COVID-19. You had hoped that the state fair would go on as normal, maybe be a return to normal. But with the Delta variant, a lot of people are nervous about going to the fair. You said yesterday, if it had been up to you, you would have imposed a mask mandate. Um, But it wasn't up to you. Are we at the point now where things aren't ever going to be quite like they were before COVID-19? Well, I I think they are going to be different. And that's not necessarily a a pejorative. We've learned much um, over the last 18 months from when this started. But my point in in talking to folks is, is that this is going to be probably endemic, um, certainly for the coming years, which means it's going to have hotspots. It's going to come and go. It's a bit like when it rains, you take an umbrella or if it's cold out, you put on a hat and gloves. We're going to have to approach when these COVID spikes come or a new variant arises. We need to be smart. And being smart means continuing to get as many people as we can vaccinated to understand that masks do work, especially in crowded indoor spaces, and that we can adjust how we approach COVID and go on with some things. And I was out at the state fair, and and it was not a totally typical state fair, but I'll tell you, there was a lot of folks that felt gratitude about being able to walk by a butter carving or to be able to grab that, that corn dog. But they also recognized, and you could feel it, a lot of folks carrying masks, being consider it to their neighbors by putting them on when they got in crowded spaces and then taking them off when they were walking down the boulevard. So, Mm. no, I think it's going to be changed. Um, This has happened before, not during many of our lifetimes, but we do know the science is solid. We do know what works. And if we simply work together and we've seen, um, we can reduce the spread. We can reduce the hospitalizations. But the, the Delta variant is real. You're seeing it in the South. And if the pattern holds true, which I have every reason to believe it will, this will work its way north as the weather cools, and, and we will see more of this throughout the fall. Hmm. School is starting or about to start. Uh, lots of controversy over whether kids should wear masks. Some parents just don't want them. Uh, what's your best advice on that? Well, there's no controversy from CDC and, and MDH and our best health guidance. It's the children should be wearing masks in those indoor you know close contact facilities, but they also to recognize these, these kids under 12 don't even have the opportunity to get vaccinated yet. We're hopeful that that's coming here in the next month or so, that there'll be an opportunity, but the, the research and the science is solid on this. And, and once again, I would, I would encourage folks to follow that CDC and MDH guidance. We are strongly encouraging school districts to implement masks for their students um, to make sure we have, again, we and we do have the most robust school testing program in the country. Every single student in Minnesota has access to a quick test that we can then, you know, make sure that we're we're isolating and stopping this from spreading. We saw yesterday in 
in Albert Lee school opened up and we had 296 kids on the first day. So this is going to be an ongoing problem, but we know that through vaccinations, especially of those who are eligible 12 and above and the, and the staff and masking mandates, we can significantly reduce those spreads and we can do what we know we need to do, have in-person learning. Should schools and uh, private companies for that matter uh, impose uh, vaccination mandates? Well, I think they you've seen this across the country. If, if they want to make sure that their workforce and their customers are safe, if they want to make sure that their business thrives and prospers, they will make it so that they put these things in. We do it all the time. Um, no, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Employees need to wash their hands. We inspect uh, businesses to make sure they're clean. Um, what we know is, is if you're unvaccinated, even if you are vaccinated and you're in an enclosed space without a mask, there's a chance you're spreading a very highly contagious and much more uh, difficult Delta variant. And we had 901 deaths in Florida yesterday. We're getting back up to where we were in the in the spring. So I think these businesses have every right to make those decisions. They're protecting their workforce. They're protecting their customers. And they're protecting their bottom line. Um, this whole idea that had we not done anything with businesses, they would have been thriving. It's just like the state fair. A large number of people are choosing not to go because it doesn't feel safe enough for them. And, and I think that's the point, Mike, where we're at. I keep talking about this being endemic. My family's all vaccinated. I'm wearing a mask at the state fair. I think these are things of making uh, calculated risks that are involved with your family. I think one of the things is um, that folks who have younger children or who have you know immune-compromised individuals that they come in contact with, they should think very carefully about going to events like the state fair, like concerts. And the problem that I have with with schools is is children that are immunocompromised or children that, that have certain conditions, um, and if they're in a school where masks are optional, those children don't have the choice of going to school. They have to stay home. Speaking of schools, uh, some test results were released today. They indicate that student achievement appeared to take a real hit because of distance learning. Just 53% of students met the state uh, reading standards. That's down 7% from seven percentage points from two years ago. For math, it was 44% considered proficient, down 11 percentage points. Um, in fairness, now, a lot of students didn't actually take the test, but uh, what's your yeah. reaction to those numbers? Well, we expected it to be there. Um, we certainly know that it, it showed existing gaps that were already there. We know that we're trying to achieve uh, the standards for all of our students. Uh, it also shows when you start to disaggregate that data that it didn't hit all students uh, equally, as you might guess. Some students had access to high-speed broadband. They were in school districts where they were able to attend more. So what we know is, and, and we've got, you know, the we've got the proposals ready. We've got the will. We've got the research and the knowledge to be able to uh, to to provide the support necessary in conjunction with those local districts, making their decisions of what's happening in their district to get our students back to where they need to get to. And, and I think this gives us a real opportunity to personalize education, which we've talked about. Our Do North plan and our Compass plan, that's a collaborative model, um, will work. This is very consistent, as I've looked uh, at about 17 other states whose data came in that's comparable to our MCAs. It, it's a pattern that's across the country. And, and that's why it's more important than ever 
that we protect our kids, we create safe environments, and we keep them and their instructors in the classroom. So we've got work to do, but the proposals are there. We knew this early. I'm just grateful that we were able to provide that summer support. We think that we probably already made some pretty big gains with the added um, additions to what we did over the summer and the summer learning that came with the Recovery Act dollars. But um, there's work to be done, and these districts know they've got a partner to do it. And uh, we'll see we'll see results by next year. And and then that's exactly what every teacher in that classroom knows they need to do. Uh, let me ask you just a couple more about uh, COVID, and then we'll get to some calls from listeners. Um, you made a big push for people to get vaccinated. You were you know handing out those hundred dollar gift cards. Would you say the vaccination push in Minnesota has been a success, or are you disappointed that not enough people took the shots to head off the Delta variant? Well, we're we're currently 15th uh, amongst the states in terms of the number vaccinated, so I, I think we were successful. I, To be very honest, I was not really willing to settle with anything less than first. Minnesota has a real sense of of, of social responsibility. We have the highest vote turnout. We have the highest census turnout. Um, and we have a very high, and, and I will have to say, we, we did save lives, certainly in the spring by the vaccination process. We certainly did it at many times during those early weeks. We were first or second in speed of getting those vaccines out. That did save lives, but that we're plateauing a little bit. Now, we have had about 80,000 folks over the last month took advantage of the $100. There was a line at the state fair yesterday where they're able to get a hundred dollar visa card right on there but but i need some help to be very honest i need some help from folks in the legislature to to be willing to say that vaccines work vaccines protect people vaccines protects our economy and ask people to get vaccinated i i don't need this you know just well you know if, if you feel like but there's just too many stories there's a story in the last couple of days in the the mankato free press a, a graduate of mankato west where i taught a 19 year old fighting for his life on a ventilator um was susceptible to the misinformation that's out there, susceptible to the, the just in my unconscionable folks that are out there pushing that vaccines are dangerous, don't work. Um, and so I think overall we're successful, but but we need a little more help. The closer that we can get to getting as many people vaccinated as possible, there's absolutely no dispute whatsoever around the science, around the data that we will keep people out of the hospitals, we will keep folks safe, and we will save lives. That's what we need to keep pushing for. So we're we're one of the top states, but I think we shouldn't settle for anything less than being the best on it. So we've got some work to do. You took a lot of heat for some of the emergency measures you put in place, banning public gatherings, things like that, uh, likely to be an issue when you run for re-election, which I assume you're, you're going to do next year. Was it worth it? Yes, it saved lives. Um, I did not take this job to figure out how to get re-elected. I took this job to make sure that I served Minnesotans, and this one's very clear um, the folks who said, well, we wouldn't have done it this way, we'd have done it another way. That's a bit of proving the negative. But the one good thing is, is that there's data to show this. Had I taken the path that some of our neighboring states took, um, we would have 8,000 more people dead. We'd have tens of thousands in the hospital and our economy wouldn't have recovered as fast. So to sit on the sidelines, to critique um, is one thing, but to actually have to make these decisions, I believe we made them based on the science. We made them on the best interest of, of Minnesotans. And as we're seeing now, both in number of deaths, number of folks that were hospitalized, and economic recovery, um, I, I think it's going to show, and history will show, that these were the right decisions. They were not easy decisions. Um, they certainly weren't doing it to be popular. No one wanted to 
to see businesses close. But I also think that we we did it in a responsible way. We advocated for the support for folks, whether it would be businesses or what we're doing right now, essential workers. Um, and I will I will gladly make the case that um, telling people that this was nothing or this was the flu and to just ignore it, um, which many folks who will who will be wanting to be the governor of Minnesota told people that there are repercussions for that. Governor Tim Walls, our guest uh, for the first part of our show this morning, although, Governor, if your schedule allows it, you're certainly welcome to stay a little longer. Let's uh, go to the phone lines. Julia uh, in St. Paul with a question for the governor. Hi, Julia. Go ahead. Uh, Hi, Governor Tim Walls. My name is Julia. I'm from St. Paul, and I'm calling to ask, how do you justify the building of the Line 3 and the tar sands oil that flows through it, given that that is a direct violation of treaty rights that you vow to uphold in this moment of climate crisis? extreme drought. We've seen Enbridge violate their permits numerous times and the agencies tasked with, you know, holding them accountable, failing. Um, And we're wondering, you know, how can we trust you to be a climate leader in this moment? Thank you. Hi, Julia. Well, this is a tough issue, climate in general. Um, I've had a record both in Congress and and as governor of moving things like clean cars, um, moving our eco plans and, and moving Minnesota towards that path. The issue of existing infrastructure, the line three process started long before I was governor. And my job as the chief executive is to follow state law as it's written. My agencies simply implement what's written in state law for permitting. And through this entire process, that's exactly what we've done. Now, the safeguards in this is you can go to court and the line three was taken to court. It was taken to appeal and it was taken to the Supreme Court. And in every single instance, they upheld that the law was followed, the law was implemented. But what I would say on this, Julie, is, is that one pipeline is, is not going to be where we, we win this battle on climate change. It is, total, it is real. Um, the collaborations that we're going to have to build together, um, both as states, nation, and globally, um, that sense of urgency is there. So I've always said the issue is not um, supply of fossil fuels. It's demand of fossil fuels. It's reducing the demand so that the 2.3 million miles of pipeline we have in this country um, become non-essential as we move towards, as we've seen here in Minnesota, we move towards a carbon-free uh, by 2040. And we're being the first state, as I said, in the entire Midwest to electrify our transportation grid. So I, I know this is a controversial issue, but it is a much broader issue than that. And my job as government is not to arbitrarily pick and choose which projects go. It's to implement and follow state law. And, and I would advocate for folks who are opposed to how these things are permitted to have the state legislature change the permitting process. That That's the only way, because I don't have that authority, nor should I to arbitrarily decide to build or not to build projects that are following state law. Another caller uh, with a question for the governor, Jackie in St. Paul. Hi, Jackie. Go on. Go ahead. Oh, You're yeah. on. Hello, governor, and thank you for taking my call. I think many of us are very sad and, and interested in what's going on in Afghanistan, and I'm proud of our country, our state, to be willing to resettle um, Afghanistan because we have such a good reputation with the Vietnamese and the Hmong. And I was just wondering, is it too soon for you to know any of the protocols that we would have to go through, and how many do you think we could accommodate over the years? Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, Jackie. And I I do note, and we're still trying to gather information on the the tragic uh, bombings yesterday because the chaotic situation uh, in Afghanistan. And just to be clear, it was probably the incidents in Afghanistan and Iraq that led me into political 
office and service because of frustrations. And I've seen four administrations, I think, uh, create a situation that never gave us an end state that that simply made the world a little bit safer. With that being said, we're we're committed in Minnesota to to making sure, first and foremost, I'm my the National Guard troops we have in supporting this are doing everything they can to get folks out safely. At this point in time, Jackie, 35 Afghani uh, nationals have been resettled into Minnesota. Um, we are in the process of 35 more. So the state is committed to 70 here in the early hours. And these are a lot of our partners like uh, Lutheran Social Services, Catholic Charities and other nonprofits who are there to provide the uh you know, the the fiscal backing of folks, making sure that these folks have what they need to be resettled, to be able to have housing, to be able to have employment, to be able to um, to become, as you said, uh, a big part of the fabric of Minnesota, like our Hmong uh, sisters and brothers and neighbors have been able to do. And so we are in the process of that. The system works very well here. As you know, that Minnesota ranks um, as the top state per capita of accepting um, refugees and those fleeing conflict, and that will not change. So there's 35 folks on the ground now here in Minnesota, with another 35 that are that are in transit, and um, we will continue to monitor the situation and and to provide that that refuge that that Minnesota has provided for so many over the years. Uh, with all the um, rhetoric we've heard from. Uh the Republican Party and the former president over the past five years on refugees and immigrants, do you expect political pushback on accepting Afghan refugees? Well, I would suppose so. I think it, it it's a talking point for some folks. We need to have reforms in our immigration system. We certainly should expect people to immigrate legally. We also know when people say they should get in line, that there isn't a line. I, I worked on this as a member of Congress. I think, unfortunately, now that, you know, if I say it's Friday, folks will say it's not. If I say up, they'll say down. Um, I, I think we need to get beyond that. This is a catastrophic situation of folks who are allied to us. I think questions that need to be asked about what was the goal of our mission there are fair. But at this point in time, I think the real thing is, is rallying around getting out both Americans and allies as safely as possible. Um, but I would guess there may be um, maybe some of that. But once again, I I did not take the job to be popular. I took the job to try and uphold Minnesota values. And one of the things Minnesotans have been very clear about for many, many years, that this is a state that is welcoming and open, especially to those feeling fleeing persecution, um, which we're seeing now uh, that will continue to accelerate in Afghanistan. Governor Tim Wall is joining us today for the first half of the program. Governor, uh, you came out yesterday against the proposed change to the Minneapolis Charter Amendment on public safety in the police department there. Why? Well, this issue around public safety, and I just want to be very clear, the, the murder of George Floyd and then the killing of Dante Wright and some of the things we've seen, especially in our larger urban areas, we're seeing a population that, that simply not only is worried about crime, they're fearful of the people who are supposed to protect them from that. We have a pattern and practice uh, investigation going on by the Department of Justice and the Minnesota Department of Human Rights has been looking at the Minneapolis Police Department. But I think the oversimplification that we're going to, through a charter system, and again, I'm not a Minneapolis resident, so this will be decided by folks in Minneapolis. I'm a St. Paul resident. Um, but I think the complexity around this issue and trying to get information about what does a reformed public safety system look like? And I'm proud of the efforts that we've taken on this, whether it's through the post-border signing 
pretty comprehensive reforms around policing and around public input in what policing looks like. For example, if we have someone in a mental health crisis, folks are absolutely right that we shouldn't send someone with a gun that doesn't have extensive training in mental health. We should do that in conjunction. I'm in total agreement with that. What I, I, I just don't think that putting this on a charter and, and in all fairness, how you're going to implement some of these not using the executive, the mayor, for example, and having it done basically by committee is going to be very challenging. We're seeing that during COVID that we're having folks, again, I'll go back to what are we going to do about masking in schools? Well, now we have basically hundreds of different districts making their decisions. It's hard to come to a consensus decision. So I, I just think that there's there's better ways to do this. I, I am simply fearful that, that folks, this is a complex issue and, and we're not getting enough information out to folks so that they can make this decision at this point. And, and it has implications. Uh, and again, I think you can hold two things at the same time, that a black family should not worry about their son or daughter driving to sports practices and being pulled over by the police and that escalating into a, a situation that we've seen happen. Also, folks should not be worried about going to a twins game and walking back to their car. We know we can do this. We know that we can reduce crimes. We know it's more systemic. We know that if you want to make the case on this, we can tie this back to test scores and home ownership and, and systemic racial issues. But to change dramatically in the state and one of the nation's larger cities um, at a time of increased angst coming out of COVID, I, I just am not sure this is the right way to go. Let's take another call from uh, Pamela in Minneapolis. Hi, Pamela. Go ahead. Good morning, Governor. I just first want to say thank you. I think you've had a really tough job and you've done a, a great job in, you know, trying to keep us all safe during COVID. My question is kind of a follow up to what you were just talking about. Um, with the uptick in crime across the this entire state, actually, but particularly in the metro, and I know you don't have control over some of the issues of law enforcement, but what are your thoughts on how we can rein that back in so that we don't see all of the violence and you know, the shootings and particularly of children that get caught in the crossfire, at, like the carjackings and things like that. Yeah, no, thank you, Pamela, for the kind words. I do think this is where many people are are taking this position. They understand that reforms need to happen. And, and I say this as a teacher, um, that we can't expect our police departments to solve all of society's and social issues. And, and when we ask them to do that, we put them in untenuous situations. We also should expect them to be accountable, accountable to the citizens, accountable for their behavior and as transparent as possible. So I think one of the things, Pamela, I, I don't I can't quantify this. And I'm always very careful about anecdotal about saying things. But but certainly with covid um, prior to covid. Minnesota was 47th on, on crimes. We were the third safest state. We've ticked up a little bit to about fifth, I think, now. But, you know, one is too many. I I talked to my friend KG who lost his granddaughter, and I'm telling you, you go to a funeral and you see a a, a toddler in a casket, um, something's not right. And, and that is very apparent to everybody in that room. And I think coming out of COVID and looking at airline incidents, looking at road rage incidents, looking at more of these shootings, we need to take a holistic approach to this. We need to understand why as society, and, and I recognize this, I can't use rhetoric that is hateful, spiteful, even though I disagree strongly um, with with many of my political opponents, but, but I'm not going to add to that. Um, 
that, that that angst that's out there. We have to have a conversation. There's too many guns on the street. There's too many guns. Thank goodness we had a, a, a good level-headed decision that folks don't need to carry their gun on the giant slide. It's not that scary at the state fair. And I think all of those things, we can have this conversation about reforms, about what do we want as a society, and about how do we improve public safety and, and address some of the systemic issues? So um, this is complex. It's not going to be there's going to be folks that will tell you, we'll just send every state patrol onto the streets of Minneapolis. Well, highway deaths are up at a 30 year high because we don't simply have enough to patrol the highways and to make sure that folks aren't getting into accidents and things and trying to figure out how do you strike that proper balance is going to take some really candid conversations. It's going to have to drop the slogans. People are going to have to recognize there's no simple fix on this. But once again, we have figured out a way to do that. Going into COVID, we saw some of the lowest crime rates, if not the lowest, um, in our nation's history. And we can get back to that if we're willing to, to have the hard conversations. And again, I'd say this, if we're willing to invest where we need to invest, and, and that's going to be in our children, it's going to be investing, broadening what the definition of public safety looks like. Governor, you ran on a theme of one Minnesota. Um, certainly, you've faced a lot of opposition from the right side of the political spectrum. We're hearing some controversy on the left side over the pipeline and over the uh, Minneapolis Charter Amendment. Uh, are you worried at all about the sort of fracturing of the Minnesota, one Minnesota? Yes. Yes, I am. And it's why I ran and it's why I'm more committed than ever that that was the right message. And, and when I said this, Mike, one Minnesota doesn't mean that we all agree or we all have the same, same lived experiences. What it means is we work across those differences to find our common humanity. And I worried about this and ran on it because I saw it starting to happen, you know, a decade ago that folks in rural Minnesota seeing themselves as different from folks in urban Minnesota and in the Twin Cities and, and vice versa. And folks that play on that theme, well, you don't know how our way of life is. You don't know how this goes. The beauty of our state is we have an incredibly diversified economy. We have an incredibly diversified geography. And as the census showed is, we're, we're, incredibly, we're becoming more incredibly diverse. All of those things are positives. They take a little bit of work. And when you have people telling folks, I've got mine and I don't care about my neighbor. I've got it here and don't let anybody else here. Um, those are messages that work counter to that. So I do worry about it. I, I will tell you, I think it's, it's harder now after COVID than it was before. But my commitment to making the case is, is that our commonality, the things that we share together, our shared humanity, um, the decency and that Minnesota heritage is alive and well. And I won't be the only person to do this, elected officials. This is going to have to resonate throughout our business community, our nonprofits, neighbor to neighbor, and be very honest, family to family. You've got listeners out there that I'm sure that the vaccine issue and COVID has created a rift where they maybe don't even talk. Um, that's got to come to an end. So when I talk one Minnesota, I'm talking about that broader ability to bring us together. And, and I will continue to try and do my best. I'm proud of the budgets that we've passed that serve both greater Minnesota and, uh, and the Twin Cities. And again, as you said, Mike, you know, hearing a little hit, heat from the left and the right, um, that probably tells me that I'm probably in about the right spot of trying to solve problems without over-politicizing them and trying to base it on facts that improve the lives of Minnesotans. So 
I'll, I'll continue on the best I can. I know you uh, you only committed to a half hour today. You're welcome to stay longer if you if you have time. Um, I have a scheduled call, Mike. We're actually talking to uh, the chancellor of the Minnesota State Systems. We're we're getting ready to go back to college, and um, I'm going to talk to the chancellor because we've got some. We've got good plans to make that happen, but I, for your listeners to know the complexity of figuring out how to test um, hundreds of thousands of students and instructors and be able to do that in a manner that allows them to learn uh, takes a little bit of planning. So I'm heading to that meeting next. Okay. Do you want to uh, formally announce you're running for re-election right here? Or? Well, I've not made that that decision yet. I said I wanted to stabilize a little bit around COVID, see where we're at, get our students back in school, and and make that decision. But I have to tell you, Mike, I think um, I think we've done a good job for Minnesota. I believe that um, the challenges that we face are maybe unprecedented, and we've done it in a way um, that 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 I think is very Minnesotan. And whether it be protecting lives whether it be addressing issues of equity or or whether it be trying to tackle climate change in a tough environment, we're doing those things. So I, I certainly think we've got a lot to offer, and we'll make that decision pretty soon. All right. We'll take that as a stay tuned. Governor Tim Walz, right. thanks so much for uh, joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Have a good weekend. And thanks for the calls, too. Uh, we're going to continue with our program, and we're going to talk about the drought. The weekly drought monitor put out yesterday by the federal government shows that the drought actually got worse over the past week, even though we have had that rain in southern Minnesota. Most of northern Minnesota and a large swath of central Minnesota are still in extreme drought, and there's a strip of northwestern Minnesota from the North Dakota border to Red Lake up to the Canadian border in what's called exceptional drought. As the rain finally falls in southern Minnesota, it's a good time to check in with two of our northern NPR News reporters about where things stand. Dan Gunderson is based in Moorhead and watches northwestern Minnesota. And Dan Crocker works out of Duluth and covers northeastern Minnesota. If you have questions about the ongoing drought and the fires in northeastern Minnesota, give us a call, 651-227-6000, or you can call us toll-free, 800-242-2828. Dan Gunderson, Dan Crocker, thanks for being here. If you want, you can just call me, Dan, to avoid some confusion, but... Uh, we'll we'll try to get past that. Let me start with you, Mr. Dan Crocker. Uh, you've been tracking the wildfires in northeastern Minnesota. Uh, we had rain here yesterday and today in the southern part of the state. Did you get any yesterday? Uh, well, not much, unfortunately, especially up uh, where the fires are burning, Mike. I, I just actually, before I came on with you, I, I got off the phone with Fire Information Officer Clark McCready up there. And he said they got only about a tenth of an inch of rain on the Greenwood fire, which is the big fire that's burning, you know, um, near Isabella. Mm -hmm. So not much. Um, but that being said, the weather is cooperating right now. It's, it's very favorable for firefighters right now because it's cool, it's cloudy. And even though we didn't get much rain, there is moisture in the air, so the humidity is up. So that really helps sort of dampen the fire and allows crews to be more aggressive and get on the ground and and really get after this thing. So the next couple of days, they're really hopeful that that those crews are going to be able to hit this these fires pretty hard, um, and they're hope they're hoping they can make some good progress over the next couple of days while the weather cooperates. And tell us a little more about specifics on the Greenwood fire. Uh, it's it's been the big one that we've been hearing about. How big is that fire now, and uh, how much damage has it actually done? 
Yeah, so at last count, um, we haven't gotten the, the updated acreage today, um, but it's about 26,000 acres, so it's big. That's 40 square miles. This is a big fire. It's, it's the largest in the state in the past 10 years since the Pagami Creek Fire, um, which was burned about 90,000 acres in the BWCA, for folks who remember that one. Um, it's almost as big as the Cavity Lake Fire, which burned in the BW in 2007 in some of that blowdown area. Um, on Monday, Mike, is when the fire really did some serious damage. That's when the winds really whipped it up. People may have seen pictures of that incredible plume that it created called a pyrocumulus cloud. When fires get moving like that, they generate a ton of energy and create their own weather. Officials actually saw lightning coming out of that cloud over the fire on Monday. So really dangerous conditions. And that that is the day when the fire did some serious damage. It mm. The fire was driven through an area around McDougal Lake, which is a chain of three small lakes west of Isabella. There are a bunch of cabins and and some permanent residences around there. Um, And the fire did destroy 12 seasonal cabins. It damaged three others, and it destroyed more than 50 outbuildings. I saw some video that was taken by a a local logger. Um, They've hired a bunch of loggers to help create fire lines and and, and clear out roads. And it was pretty remarkable footage just of the blackened, you know, toothpicks of of, of the forest and and cabins just gone. I mean, Mm. there were... You know, you could see the the foundations, the slabs of the basements, but then literally nothing else, just ash over the foundations. So that just gives you an idea of just the power and the and the damage that a wildfire like this can create. And is the fear is is the fear that it could still uh, threaten the town of Isabella? Well, that's the focus really now of firefighters is to make sure it doesn't do that. So I just I just looked at the maps and it's about five miles still from Isabella. Um, firefighters are working really hard on on putting in fire lines, both along Highway 1, which runs through Isabella to the North Shore. So they're really focusing on preventing the fire from moving north of Highway 1. And then they're also establishing lines on the east side of the fire to keep it from moving towards Isabella. And they're able to, and what they're doing with this favorable weather that I talked about, they're, they're doing what they call tactical burning operations or defensive fire burnout operations, where they're actually kind of burning back in from those containment lines towards the footprint of the fire, the idea is to remove all the burnable material there so that if the fire does get to that point, it basically runs out of runs out of fuel and runs mm. out of steam and hopefully it will stop there. So that's the goal really at this point um, is, to, is to try to keep the fire in this box from moving north of Highway 1 and from getting any closer to Isabella. Okay, that's Dan Crocker. He's our reporter in northeastern Minnesota. Let's bring in Dan Gunderson, who uh, covers northwestern Minnesota. And Dan, uh, I assume it's a, a little more of a slow-moving uh, disaster in your area with a lot of agriculture in your part of the state. Uh, what are you hearing? What's the latest about crops and livestock? Yeah, good morning, Mike. You know, this is slow-moving. It actually, The drought actually started last fall with very dry conditions after some really wet years, especially in the northwestern part of the state, you know, just a couple of years ago, farmers couldn't get their crop out of the field because it was too muddy. Um, and then it, it turned dry. You know, there's a lot of variability across Minnesota. It's a big state. And so conditions vary a lot. But um, I think in general for ag, uh, the best conditions are in the southeast where they've had more precipitation. Mm-hmm. And it's worst in the northwest where it's been driest and, and the north central. Um Livestock producers are having a kind of a tough time about uh, the latest uh, report from uh, USDA. They do a weekly, you know, crop uh, report, condition report, and about 80% of pastures are in poor condition. And that means 
you know, if you have cattle, you might have to start feeding them hay earlier than you would normally. Normally, you feed them hay in the winter. Um, because they can use the grass, grass, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if there's no grass, you have to feed them hay, and the hay is in short supply. There's a lot of competition for it because ranchers in North Dakota are trying to buy hay. You know, they have a drought as well, and in other states as well. So uh, it's it, it's a tough situation for for those livestock producers. And we could see more cattle being sold this fall uh, if if those farmers think they don't have enough feed for winter. Um, as far as crops, um, you know, the main crops like corn and soybeans are not doing that great. I mean, you know, two-thirds of those crops across the state are in fair to very poor conditions. So that means only less than a third are in good condition or better. And so um, I think farmers are, most farmers are expecting, you know, relatively poor yields. Uh, I've talked to some farmers, especially in southern Minnesota, who say, you know, we, we think we could get an average crop, but in other parts of the state, it's going to be much um, below average for those crops. Um, in terms of condition, the best crops condition-wise are potatoes and sugar beets. And, of course, potatoes are primarily an irrigated crop, so the drought has less impact there. And um, the sugar beets that are growing along the western side of Minnesota, um, you know, they can put roots down eight feet deep so they can tap into some of the subsoil moisture that's mm-hmm. left there. So they're... Um, about 75% of the sugar beet crop is is rated as good to excellent. Hmm, interesting. And uh, but I imagine a lot of folks including uh, some of those uh, livestock producers are going to be looking for help from either the federal or or the state government. What do you know about what's available? Sure. Well, for you know for the crop producers, the main crops like corn, soybeans, those those primary crops, there is the crop insurance, the federal crop insurance program. So if they have a significant loss of, of the crop, they, they do get an insurance payment there. Um, for livestock producers, that's not available. Now, um, I believe uh, 83 counties in Minnesota right now are uh, under sort of an emergency haying and grazing order from USDA. That means those farmers can... Uh, make hay or graze on some of the federal conservation acres, those pro- those acres that are put into programs to, you know, not plant any crops on them and just let grasslands grow. Um, so there's some of that assistance. There's also some financial assistance from USDA for livestock operations um, that, that have to haul water, for example. We know that some people's wells have been going dry or the ponds they typically use to water their cattle are going dry, and so they have to haul water. There is some some cost, uh, some financial assistance available for the costs of that. Um, you know, with the widespread nature of this drought, I think it's possible Congress will maybe take up some kind of relief package for farmers, um, but um, nothing uh, that I'm aware of at this point. That's Dan Gunderson. He's an NPR News reporter who covers northwestern Minnesota, a lot of agriculture issues such as that. We're also joined by Dan Crocker. He's our reporter in northeastern Minnesota. We're talking about the effects of the dry weather, the extreme drought in some areas of Minnesota. Of course, we have seen rain here the past couple of days in southern Minnesota. It's been welcome, but it's come a bit late. Well, really too late for the growing season for many people. Um But so far, not as much relief in the north, and that's what we're talking about. If you have a question for these two who seem to know quite a bit, give us a call. 651-227-6000 is the number. 651-227-6000. And Dan Crocker, let me go back to you because one of the uh, things that's been noticeable even in the Twin Cities this year has been the air quality. We've had... uh, 
smoke blow in from Canada. We've had smoke blow in from fires even farther west. Um, and I know that the smoke from the fires in your area have been affecting the air quality. What's it like today, and what are you hearing about air quality? Yeah, it's um, so the MPCA, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, they do have an air quality alert in effect through 8 o'clock tonight uh, across um, all of northeastern Minnesota, and especially, um, you know, closer to that Greenwood fire. It's been it's been bad. I mean, there have been a couple days this week in Duluth where where you woke up and you thought, oh my gosh, is there fire in my house? Because it's it smelled like a giant campfire. Actually, the uh, Duluth Fire Department put out a press release one morning saying, don't be alarmed, this is smoke from the fire, because apparently they had been getting a bunch of calls from folks reporting what they thought were fires in their buildings. So that hmm. gives you a sense of how how bad the smoke was. But yeah, it's been um it's been it's been a t- it's been a tough summer for air quality as you talked about. We had really poor air here in Duluth from Canadian fires earlier and now we've we're getting it from the fires burning in our backyard up north. Yeah, and it's funny because it as I say it rained here yesterday. I'm in St. Paul and um I thought there was a fire in my house because um the air got really bad after it rained. I think the sort of the downdraft from the uh from the weather brought in some of that smoke that was higher up in the atmosphere. So it's Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It really yeah, it depends on, on those on those on those currents and everything and, and where the smoke settles. Sometimes it shoots up into the atmosphere and doesn't have as much impact. Other times it can can get down and settle in and really cause problems. And the Boundary Waters canoe area is still closed, right? Any idea how long that closure will be in place? Well, they uh, for sure through September third, and in, in an email I saw that the Forest Service sent out to outfitters and others, um, they say that they've warned permit holders who have permits from September fourth to the tenth that they could cancel those as well, um, depending on what conditions do. Um, so at least for another week plus, prob- possibly longer. Um, it's dry up here, Mike. I mean, I, I heard the um, and there and there are a bunch of there are a bunch of fires burning in the Boundary Waters now. I just was on the InsaWeb, which is the big federal website. There's at least eight actively burning. Most of those are small. There's um, the the big fire that's in that's burning in the wilderness. That's a concern right now. Is called the John Eck Fire. Mm-hmm. It's about fifteen hundred acres. Um, and um, you know, Superior National Forest Supervisor Connie Cummins yesterday she described that as as kind of a time bomb. Um, she said that under the right conditions, it could make a run toward the Gunflint Trail. Um, and in fact, they've already sort of warned people living at the end of the Gunflint Trail to be ready to evacuate in case the fire were to make a run towards that area. It's still a ways from there. But uh, if conditions, you know, after this after this cool weather we have now, it's supposed to it's supposed to dry out again and winds pick up again Sunday, Monday. So mm-hmm. so that's why they're trying to really make progress these next couple of days. Well, and this must be a, a huge disappointment for people who were heading up to the Boundary Waters. Uh, you know, it's the end of the summer, your last chance to, to get out there. The bugs are down a little this time of year. What are folks saying who who had permits and were hoping to get into the Boundary Waters? Yeah, I, w- I actually traveled up to Ely on Monday to talk to both businesses and to some canoeists. Um, yeah, it's a disappointment. Like you said, I mean, people plan their trips a year in advance. Um, so it's huge. I, I talked to outfitters who said they literally had clients in front of them geared up, ready to go out into the wilderness last week, um, Saturday, when the outfitters got the email from the Forest Service saying the entire Boundary Waters was closed. And they had folks standing there ready to go, and they had to, they had to deliver this news that they couldn't go. 
So it's a blow for sure. I mean, there are there are all kinds of backcountry campsites outside of the wilderness, just south of the Bandu waters. So the so the national forest and some of the outfitters have been steering some folks there. I talked to some folks who decided to come anyway and, and check out some of those spots. But um, the experience is 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 not it, obviously those are beautiful areas too. But it's not the same as going going into the into the million acre wilderness. We're talking with Dan Crocker and Dan Gunderson, two of our reporters who cover northern Minnesota, talking about the dry weather, the extreme drought this summer. It's uh, taken a toll on a lot of folks and it'll certainly uh, become an emergency in some situations in terms of the wildfires. So uh, let's take a call. Randy's on the line from Rochester. Hi, Randy. Go ahead. Yeah, Hey, hey gentlemen. I'm just very concerned about the, the extensive damage here it's doing to our our climate and to our, our our air quality. And my big concern is why haven't we made any progress towards putting this out? We've got like 26,000 acres that have been damaged thus far. And don't we have some helicopters? Can we call, come up, call out the National Guard, get some water scoops, and, and, and try and extinguish some of this fire? Thank you, sir. And I'll hang up and listen. Dan Crocker, uh, do you know if they've been talking about that, bringing in aircraft to fight the fire? They have. Uh, the, uh, the National Guard, there have been National Guard Black Hawk helicopters contributing to it. There are actually a lot of aircraft um, that have been fighting this fire. In fact, there was a, a 737 on loan from Australia that was dumping water onto it. I was I was up on the uh, near the fire last week, and it was pretty remarkable, actually. They, I went out to a place called Sand Lake in the forest, which is just a, a, a mile or two up from where the fire was actively burning. And you saw these planes come and dip down to Sand Lake and scoop up the water, make a hard bank turn, go back over the fire, dump the water, and come back. And they were doing these this circuit every two, two and a half minutes. It was remarkable how fast they were. And the officials really say that it, it's been that aircraft, especially... I mean, I know the fire made that big run and into those cabins, but prior to that, it was those aircraft that were really helping to keep the fire in check until the winds really picked up that one day. Hmm. I mean, I know it seems crazy, right, that we have 500 firefighters, we have all these aircraft, they've been working this thing for a couple of weeks. It's really indicative of the of the these these weather conditions. It's incredibly dry. They're comparing it to the 1976 drought when the whole boundary, the last time the whole boundary waters was closed. Hmm. It's incredibly hot. It's just oppressive up there. I mean, this is the warmest record, warmest summer on record in Duluth. And then you combine that with these fuel loads, which we haven't talked about yet, and and spruce budworm and a lot of dead balsam fir that had just choked this part of the forest where the fire burned. And, and you get all those factors together, and there's just not that much that firefighters can do when the when the weather and the fuels are are, are sinking up like that. Mm-hmm. Dan Gunderson, let me ask you, uh, what kind of toll has the drought been taking on people in your area, um, farmers, others who have been watching this play out. What uh, What's on people's minds? Well, certainly, you know, it's, it's stressful for people. Um, for example, if you're a rancher and you're thinking, I might have to sell part or all of my herd because I can't afford to feed them or don't have enough feed for them for the winter, obviously that's a pretty stressful situation to be in because in many cases those ranchers have spent you know, maybe a decade or two building up that herd to get the kind of animals and, and genetics that they want. So that that's pretty challenging. I mean, a lot of the farmers, you know, they're, they're, they're used to dealing with weather. So um, they know that 
it's going to change. It's going to be good. It's going to be bad. I've talked to farmers who've said, you know, we'll hope for something better next year. Um, for a lot of the, you know, the larger farmers, the corn soybean farmers, for example, they've got that federal safety net that helps them out. And we should also point out, you know, last year, farm income was up all across Minnesota, and that was partly because of pandemic aid payments that came mm-hmm. from the federal government. And uh, there were also pretty good prices for crops for a part of last year. So, you know, that's helped, I think, take some of the financial stress out. Farmers were able to catch up a little bit from some bad years that had been prior to that. Um, but we also have farmers who don't have the safety net, those smaller, you know, vegetable fruit growers that, you know, provide the stuff we buy at farmers markets and things like that. They don't have all of the same safety net uh Situation. So I think it's pretty stressful for some of those folks who really are depending on those crops for their livelihood and um, are seeing, you know, a lot of damage and a lot of struggles to try to get those crops grown. Okay, uh, a couple minutes left to go here. Let's talk to Paul in Scandia, who's on the line. Hi, Paul. Hello, how's it going? Good. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, uh, I'm in Scandia now, but I'm originally from Grand Rapids, and my question was more around the Mississippi headwaters and the lakes. You know, I read an article earlier in the week that talked about all the lakes that are controlled that flow in the Mississippi are shrinking. And Winnie Leach, um, Cross, Gull, Big Sandy are all down seven to twelve inches. And then it said that Pacagama, which is just south of Rapids, was at normal levels, which is kind of peculiar. And I don't know if you want to comment on that. But is it because are the levels all down? Not only because of the rain, or and due to the lower snowfall last year, or okay, or what? Let's how uh, does that play? Dan Gunderson, do you have do you know anything about that? Well, again, there's a lot of variation when you talk about um, you know river levels and lake levels across the state. Um, I'm looking at the uh, U.S. Geological Survey, you know, website. They have real time stream flow data. Um, and last week, I think 60% of streams in the state were at or near record lows. Um, this week, the map looks a little bit better because we've had rain, and so streams react quickly. You get a, a bump in the, the level of the streams. But uh, lake conditions vary a lot. I mean, I've talked to people in counties that have a lot of lakes, and they have lakes that are at record lows, and they also have lakes that are flooding. Um, hmm. So it can depend on what happens, but it does go back to the fact there wasn't much snow this winter in some of those areas, so the lakes were lower going into the summer, um, and they haven't had the rain, so it'll take a significant amount of rain to bring some of those lakes back up to anywhere near a normal level. Absolutely. Dan Gunderson, Dan Crocker, thanks so much for coming on. Always great to talk to you. Always uh, a lot of information for us. I really do appreciate it. And that'll do it for us today. Susan Davis was our producer. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Mulcahy. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Mike Mulcahy, Ewan Care, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.